Hello, welcome. Today I am joined by Dr. Amy Arendale, who is joining us all the way from Austria, which she can tell us about in a second. But Amy is a physiotherapist at Red Bull. So Amy, thank you very much for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No problem. So not to put the pressure on, but some pretty big hitters have already told me how amazing you are. So uh, <laughs> we've never met, but I, I, I very much value their opinions and we, we've got quite a few mutual friends in common. Um, so, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. So you, you're in Austria at the moment. So how's the how's the weather looking in Austria? Uh, well, there's a thunderstorm rolling in. So if we if there's claps of thunder uh, coming in the background, that's why. Um, but otherwise, it's pretty been pretty hot. But a regular Austrian summer um, learning, learning to live without air conditioning because coming from the U.S. are pretty attuned to having everything have air conditioning and learning to live without it, which is probably a really good lesson. <laughs> right. Yeah. So do you know what? I feel, I'm not even sure I've ever actually been to Austria. I really wanted to go for ages. But is it like as you look out of your window, is it spectacular mountains everywhere? Oh, yeah. Like when it's not raining, we've got a perfect view of the castle that sits really on top of this like small hill. Well, pretty good size hill uh, in the middle of Salzburg. And then we're 360 degrees surrounded by mountains. So I can look Amazing. you can look straight into Germany uh, from here and you could look straight step straight south, um, almost all the way into the Dolomites on a on a clear day. Wow, that sounds that does sound incredible. Sounds incredible. And so where are you from originally then? So I'm originally from Fairbanks, Alaska. Uh, so I also grew up near the mountains. Uh, <laughs> in a way, Austria has kind of been a return to the mountains for me, uh, which has been nice. But yeah, I grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska, and then uh, migrated towards the east coast of the U.S. Uh, for university. Right. So Alaska. So he's I've always had this like, fascination with Alaska. And just so what, what was that like growing up there? Yeah, it was, you know, growing up, it was normal. Like, I didn't really know much, much different. Um, I, I take that back. I, I did know a little bit different because my family, my both my parents were academics. Uh, so we actually had sabbaticals um, when I was four and a year and a half when I was 10 uh, in Cambridge, England. So I had a little picture uh, to understand how kind of eclectic Alaska was. Um, but, uh, but yeah. It was, you know, it's dark in the winter. It's pretty cold in the winter, <laughs> but it's beautiful in the summer. Um, you know, it's solid 25 degrees Celsius and you've got light almost 24 hours a day. So um, plenty of plenty of time to get outdoors and explore and play football. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Um, I was one of those places where you know, I was itching to get out. But uh, in retrospect, it was a great place to grow up. So I just have this image, which is probably completely wrong, that it's just freezing cold the entire time. Nope, not not at least where I'm from. Um, so I grew up in Fairbanks, which is like right in the middle of the state. So it's dry, cold, and it does get very, very cold um, down to, I think, around minus 60 Celsius is the coldest I've seen. Um, but our summers are are short, but they're absolutely beautiful. So it does it does actually get warm. <laughs> right. Yeah, that sounds good. And then also, like, do you feel like this is we're getting on to really random topics here, but do you feel like you're part of America? Like, do you feel very American when you're living up there? Or is, is there any disconnect? You know, like there's a there's a pretty big disconnect, um, you know, like growing up. There's there's some people in Alaska who are super, super patriotic. Um, there's a lot of people who, who really feel that disconnect. Um, so it, it's not that you feel like you're more part of Canada or more part of 
another country, but you do feel disconnected from the rest of the U.S. Um, you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that are are different enough just in daily life from even just from a weather perspective uh, that it's you recognize that it's a it's a different place. <laughs> Wasn't Sarah Palin from Alaska? Yep, she was. She was. And what actually so 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 I guess here's a here's a uh, an example of how different it is in the 2008 election. 2008. Nope. Sorry, it would have been 2004 presidential election. Her husband ran for uh, office in Alaska and the running the the, the ballot items that he ran on were that uh, the U.S. needed to stop selling Alaskan islands to Russia. And that the capital of the U.S. needed to be moved to Juneau, Alaska. Um, none of these things make sense, but that was that was what he ran on. And somehow they managed during her presidential campaign to keep or vice presidential campaign to keep a lid on that one. <laughs> right. God, yeah, no, I, I've not heard that story. So yeah, they did a good job. <laughs> yep. 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 But yeah, yeah, I mean, it it's a state, you know, as far away, it it, it attracts some eccentricity to some extent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. All right, very interesting. And so, what did you move to the East Coast for? Yeah, so I went to. Uh, I wanted to find a place where I could play play football or play soccer in in university. Um, and uh, so found a small school on the East Coast um, that I really liked, um, where I could play football. Um, and so, yeah, when I when I turned 18, uh, that's where I, I headed. So I went to a little school called Haverford College, which most people have never heard of. Um, it was actually smaller than my high school. Um, let's say it's 12, around 1,200 people. So it's real small. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my, my next step in terms of um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, as well as, you know, at that point, I still thought I could <clears throat> make a career out of playing football. I was pretty slow to figure that one out. <laughs> it was not going to happen, um, but spent three and a half years there. Um, in the middle, there was six months uh, in Aberdeen, where I studied abroad and played in the Women's Scottish Premier League um, for wow. six months. Um, and uh, yeah, then realized that was going to be the peak of my uh football career so came back and instead of playing my fourth year in university I, I coached a local high school team instead right so at this point then were you doing work in physio then or what, what were you what were you working on yeah so my undergrad uh I was a biology major um but I was working in our athletic training room so you know athletic training is a big profession over here in the states that doesn't you know it's not as big elsewhere um my school actually didn't have an athletic training program, um, but um, I was able to get a job in the training room. So I got a lot of the skills in terms of the first aid, the pitch side coverage, um, taping or strapping, um, things like that, as well as all the fun of, you know, filling up water coolers and handing out water bottles and <laughs> um, stuff like that. Uh, so over the four years, um, was kind of gaining some of that really basic kind of pitch side experience, um, but I wasn't going to get it. I wasn't going to end up with a degree to show for it. It was just experiential hours. Um, so my undergrad degree is actually in cellular biology. Um, and through that, I was kind of trying to figure out, did I want to go into coaching? Um, so I'd spend my summers coaching football camps in Colorado. Um, I, you know, didn't know if medicine was a possibility um, or physio. 
Um, at the time, I actually didn't have any exposure to sports science. So ideally, I think actually I should have been in, in sports science, but um, small enough school, um, didn't really get that exposure, didn't even know it really existed until after the fact. <laughs> um, so my, yeah, my thought process was I, I'm either going to coach football uh, or I want to work in football in some degree, um, whether that be as a doctor or as a physio. Right. And so what, where would that, the, the fascination with, with soccer had come? I'm going to say soccer just because I think everyone will associate, <laughs> you mean American football. Yep. Yep. This is the double-edged sword of being an American is, uh, I can, I can say football and everyone thinks I mean American football, but if I say soccer, someone's bound to come up and correct me and say, oh no, we call it soccer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so there's just no winning. There's no win now. There's no win. But um, so it came actually pretty early. Um, I started playing at uh, six or seven, I think. Um, kind of fell in love with it at that point just because I had a really good first few coaches. Um, a lot of my friends were on my teams. Um, and then when I went to England when I was 10, actually, I'd say that's where I really kind of caught the bug. Um, <clears throat> I was uh, the first female mascot um, that Cambridge United had. Um, so got the chance to walk out on the pitch with the team and uh, kick a goal on the goalkeeper and um, just thought that was the coolest thing. And so for me, I think that exposure at a at kind of an influential age um, was, uh, yeah, that's that's the bug that bit me. So how did you get that gig as the, uh, as the mascot then? You know, it was one of these, I think, you know, at the time Cambridge United realized that they'd never had a girl mask, a female mascot. Um, and uh, my my team or like my school team had just won a local tournament. Um, and so one of my teachers had put put my name forward. You know, I think it like rotates around the schools and teachers put their name forward. So I think one of my teachers put my name forward um, <clears throat> for Amazing. it. But. Yeah, so so nothing nothing you know in the big picture you know it wasn't a Euro it wasn't a Premier League team but good old Cambridge United I think did the trick. <laughs> yeah, it somehow it adds an extra bit of I don't know sort of shouldn't say quite about that so I quite like it. <laughs> um, so then, at what point then did you start thinking about whether it was going to be medicine or physio that you're going to go into? Yeah, you know, I think it was actually that year in Aberdeen. Um, you know, I, I'd taken a couple uh, medical school classes while actually in Aberdeen. Um, got a little exposure to what that might be like. Um, wor worked with a couple physios there as well. Um, and thing, I think in my head, coaching really felt like a pretty unstable job, um, you know, just in terms of the the changes that can happen, especially at the elite level, which is ironic since now I work in the elite level of sport and it's just as unstable um, as if I were coaching. But um, I think I was looking for maybe something that seemed to represent a little more stability than coaching. Um, so then after spending some time with a couple orthopedic surgeons and realizing that, you know, the majority of their patient facing time is really quite short um, or it's in an OR where the person is unconscious. Um, I think I realized that I really like conscious people um, and the relationships that you can develop, you know, working with somebody as a physio um, are pretty special um, and that that was what I wanted to do. So, yeah. So how did that transition happen then? Yeah. So by that point, so as my third year, 
um, or I've finished, finished my third year going into my fourth year in university. Um, still needed some different prerequisites um, to get into PT school. So decided that I was going to take a year off. Um, so I got a year long fellowship teaching um, and being a football coach at a school outside London. Um, took those prerequisites while I was uh, in that year and then uh, went to Duke for PT school. So down in North Carolina. Um, so yeah. yeah. Spent right. three years, three years down there. And then, you know, it, during that time, just trying to get as much soccer exposure as I could. So volunteering at every every football club or soccer club that would have me basically. <laughs> I mean, it's hard. I know, I know it's uh, around the world. It's massive now. And you can see that with the World Cup that's going on. But I coached soccer in um, in America. I was working for MLS in 99 and it was massively popular i think it was even then it was the biggest participation sport for certainly for for women girls yeah but even even from a guy's perspective it's massive there now isn't it still it's, it's a huge huge sport and you had like mia ham and um that those guys so it was it was a, it was a huge sport when yeah. i was there which is 20 well 24 years ago now yep yep yeah, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I do think, you know, the U.S. from a women's soccer perspective was ahead of many, many other places. Um, you know, it was 94, 93-94 that we were in England. Um, and there were a couple people that my dad, you know, we were, my team would be out on the field and it was other dads on the sideline that would say, oh, I don't know if these girls should be playing football. Um, and for my dad, that was a big surprise. Um, just kind of going, you know, why should they not be playing football? Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think whether it's Title IX that came through in 1985, that at least at the collegiate level kind of equalized funding for women, men's and women's sports. Um, and I think soccer was a real benef beneficiary of that. Um, you know, women's soccer has really, um, really took off. Um, now, now I think it's actually the rest of the world that's catching up. So. You know, we'll, we'll see how this World Cup turns out. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> well, I, I would definitely say that it's only really in the last maybe sort of three, four years in England that it's really they've done a massive push on the BBC and really supporting it. And you're seeing these teams of getting great funding at City, Chelsea, Arsenal, all these different ones. And yeah. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's amazing now. And you see the quality is like really good when you're watching the World Cup games. It's um. It's good. So it's really good to see that they are they are investing in it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm excited to see, you know, once the investment in some of these uh, academies um, starts to bear fruit, too, as well. Just I think the level of play is just going to infinitely increase even more, which is really exciting. Yeah. No, it is. I think I think it's I think it's going to be it's going to be really interesting. And so did you have a vision at that point then? So you really trying to get involved in working in soccer and, and so on. Like, What did you envisage? Did you have a vision of what you wanted to be in that 20 years time or 30 years time? Yeah, I mean, my my goal was to work in the Premier League. Um, my goal was to, to, to be a physio in a Premier League club, not necessarily actually at a first team. Um, I, you know, I love I love teenagers and athletes that are developing. Um, so I was I was going to be happy if I was at an academy. Um, but you know, just basically being 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 around and living 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 football twenty four seven was kind of my the picture of what I wanted to do. Um, that's kind of, that was yeah that was my career goal. Um, and for you know for a long time was it was kind of the epitome of what I wanted what I thought I wanted to do with my career. 
I did, I did kind of in the back of my head, I think it's because both my parents were academics, um, that eventually I thought I might get a PhD, um, and then the long, long term, maybe end up in academia. Um, but I thought, you know, I'd really develop a clinical specialty within sports and football, um, <clears throat> before I went on and kind of did that, um, and, you know, life, life, life throws different things at you, so. <laughs> um, it did did it in a little different order, but um, but yeah. So I think I always had some that kind of that uh, research research kind of piece in the back of my head. But um, certainly coming through PT school, yeah, my goal was my goal was for trying to get in the Premier League. And so when you were speaking to your tutors and so on, and you're talking about this because I, I speak to loads of physios that have said oh yeah I want to work in that and they're just like yeah if you think you're going to be working at Man United or whatever you think again what was what was the feedback you got when you said that to people yeah you know I got a I got a lot of really good support um you know I think I was really I wasn't unrealistic in in knowing the hurdles to get there whether that um the the big ones being uh you know gaining experience um but then for me being an American needing a visa um the difficulty of of getting the visa especially when there's so many qualified um uk physios um but so i think i was i was realistic and so i think because of that realistic uh viewpoint of knowing what i kind of needed to get to that point um have some really good mentors um who were really supportive um and and continued to kind of feed me ideas of things that would help me get to get to that point so whether that was direction for um <clears throat> you know further opportunities to get involved or whether that was um, conferences that I should go to to begin growing my network um I think those were especially kind of the early volunteering kind of early getting my nose dirty um and and then also just trying to get out and and meet people and grow my network um were were super valuable pieces of advice um, and certainly pieces of advice that I hand hand to others. Um, but yeah, I, you know, I certainly have had plenty of people come to me and say, oh, well, you know, I'm just, I graduate next year. How do I, how do I work in the Premier League? Um, and, and I think having that realistic expectation of what it takes to actually get to the elite levels of sport um, not every not everyone comes to you directly <laughs> so yeah um, and why yeah. was it the premier league what was it about the premier league that particularly that that league yeah i think for me the premier league um has always kind of represented the highest level of football um and so for me from a football standpoint um you know not from a football and a sports medicine standpoint um you know that was kind of the what i set what i saw as the top bar um at the time um, so, you know, that was, that was the top level of football. And so therefore, um, from fo football medicine standpoint, I also thought that it was there. You know, I think I've also, I've learned a lot since then. Um, you know, I know there's, there's some elite practitioners all over the world. There's elite, um, sports medicine groups all over the world. Um, so, you know, there's also some really elite, um, sports medicine practitioners, um, and groups within the Premier League. So, um, mm. Not yeah. not maybe as exclusive a club as I thought at that point, but. <laughs> and do you have a team that you support them? Uh, yeah, I grew up an Arsenal fan. So my first, my coach in Cambridge when I was 10 was an Arsenal fan. And so I adopted that ever since. 
Yeah, well, Gary O'Driscoll was singing your praises as well, actually. So that's oh, good. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Gary, Gary's pretty amazing. Gary's yeah. great. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's really interesting. You had such a clear, clear idea then. So what happened after you'd graduated? Yeah, so my, um, in the U.S., actually, so it's a little different. So in the U.S., as a physio, you graduate with a doctoral degree. So as opposed to, say, the U.K., where you're coming out with a bachelor's and someone might go back to get a master's. Um, in the U.S., we come out with a doctoral degree, but then similar to doctors, you have the opportunity, you can do a residency or a fellowship to kind of further specialize. Um, for me, I actually turned, I decided not to do that, but kind of build my own um, type residency. Um, so I managed, I got a job where I'd spent my mornings in a sports clinic, um, and then they'd never hired a new grad uh, so in order to kind of feel comfortable hiring a new grad, um, I would eat lunch every day with my boss. So I had this like built in net, uh, like mentor time. Uh, and then I would go spend the afternoon at a big uh, youth football club. So <clears throat> they had an academy system um, as well as then um, a bunch of other teams. Um, so just met 9000 kids within this club. So I really only took care of that academy level um group of players uh, but it was a pretty good setup to kind of have this kind of split day so i'd see a lot of endurance athletes in the morning um and some high school athletes get this great mentor time to be able to chat through any problems that i was having or chat through cases that i get stuck on um, and then go out to the football club in the afternoon and get the, kind of that exposure so so for me it was kind of like the first the perfect job and got kind of all the pieces that in a u.s residency you get <clears throat> uh, but then started to see a lot of ACLs, um, especially in my my female football players. And so even after kind of starting my own little prevention camps within the club, um, saw a few re-injuries um, and kind of this, some of these questions around like, how do we prevent ACLs? How do we optimize rehab for an ACL? Um, how do we prevent ACLs from happening again? Started to kind of pop up over and over and over again. Um, and I got the chance to go and do a PhD at University of Delaware with uh, two women who I really looked up to. So one being Lynn Snyder Mackler, um, who I had really looked up to from a research perspective. Um, and the other being Holly Silvers, um, who from a clinical perspective was one of the top clinicians kind of within soccer in the U.S., um, but it also had a hand in developing the PET program, the 11 plus program. Um, and so from a prevention standpoint, just had this wealth of knowledge. Um, so I found out that Holly was going to do her PhD with Lynn, um, called up Lynn and kind of said, hey, do you have room for another PhD student? <laughs> uh, and I went up to what I thought was an interview uh, with Lynn and Lynn sat me down and said, well, when you start in August, you know, you can work on this project or you can work on that project. And I said, oh, well, I guess I'm doing a PhD. <laughs> so, so yeah, so I headed to Delaware um, to do a PhD and that would have been 2013. Right. And so for the, something like that then, so can you work alongside that or is that a full-time PhD? 
Yeah, so I was fully funded. Um, so we were actually kind of different. Holly was working working uh, full time um, and doing her PhD remotely. So she'd come in for data collections. I was at UD full time. So um, I did a little bit of work in the clinic. Um, I worked with the UD rugby teams, um, but the majority of my funding actually came from work in the lab. Um, so running motion analysis, um, processing data, organizing data collections, um, and then following kind of patients through that were in our studies kind of through any clinic uh, work that they were doing. Um, and then also teaching in the DPT program or teach, being a teaching assistant in the DPT program at University of Delaware. So kind of a big exposure mix of all sorts of things, but primarily it was uh, research-based and then picking up some of the like rugby work on the sides. And what was it like going from having been in a clinical environment to going into something that was well was very, very academic? Yeah you know I think um, it was a pretty it was a natural transition because so much of what we were doing was clinic-based. Um, you know it was um, you know there was a lot to learn in terms of like going from having never done a 3D motion analysis to running you know however many and you know whether it's two or three a week or during some of our big data collections um we'd run like 16 over the 16 to 25 over the course of two to three days um so there was a big upskill from a biomechanics standpoint um but because where all of the research was really tied into the clinic it didn't feel super different just because we were always around all either always around the clinic, around the lab, which was tied into the clinic, um, or around the PT students, um, where you know all their questions are generally around like, well, in the in the clinic, what does this look like, or you know, what's your experience doing this and this? So, mm. yeah, and then so in terms of interacting with those with Holly and Co, so like, how much interaction did you have with with those guys? Say that again. How much interacting did you have with Holly if she was only coming in for that? Was that was she she was doing something completely separate to to what you yeah, were working on? We we actually had quite a bit because the projects it ended up that uh, our PhD or part of what ended up being a third of my PhD project and about two thirds of hers um, was a project that we ran together. So we looked at if there were we tried to look at if there were biomechanical changes um, over the course of a collegiate se season um, with soccer players performing the 11 plus um so so we it was um a project that she'd kind of uh put together originally and then we piloted together um and then actually a lot of the data collections uh, because i was there and familiar with how to run the data collections um most of the data collections and processing i did um but we'd always be in, in pretty tight tight collaboration um one of the other projects I did was actually through MLS, um, and since she sat on the MLS um, Medical and Research Committee, um, <clears throat> she helped. She kind of helped me through that project as well a little bit. So there was a lot of collaboration back and forth on um, on big big chunks of our PhDs. So, mm. and how much research had been done at that point into like, women's ACLs? Because like even now, there's like there's a massive disparity, isn't it, between the men's and females prevalence? Yeah, you know, even at that point, there was still a fair amount when it comes to prevention. And that's, I think, one of the interesting pieces is actually we have a fair amount of evidence when it comes to prevention programs on female ACL um, <clears throat> incidents. Um, 
you know, there's we we lack a lot of evidence in a lot of other places around women athletes. Um, but when it comes to prevention, like the efficacy of prevention programs, we actually need more data in men, ironically. So um, we have data that says, you know, prevention programs are effective, especially in these younger women. Um, you know, we're talking to that like 14 to 18 age group where people where women are at really, really high risk. Right. We know some of these we will call them, quote unquote, off the shelf programs like PEP, like the 11 plus, like Perform Plus or Cannot Control. Like we know they're effective in reducing ACL incidence um, in women. Um, where we don't have as much evidence is on strength training in women, especially as women women mature. Um, you know, I hate it, but menstruation always comes up. Um, I hate it because it comes up all the time right now. <laughs> and we're really ignoring the really big foundations of training um, because, you know, an effective strength training program, um, in my perspective, I think is probably going to make a much bigger impact um, than menstrual cycle. Um, but, you know, they, we've got a few small studies with 20 women that we like quoting a lot. Um, and so menstrual cycle gets tossed out a lot. Um, so whether it's the basics and like establishing a really good strength and conditioning program, whether it's the basics around, um, <clears throat> you know, mon load monitoring in women, um, whether it's the basics around, um, you know, even just really good injury epidemiology in women, those are the places where we do need more research. But when it comes to straight ACL injury prevention, and especially young women, we actually already have a lot. So why do you think, because you still see some people saying there needs to be a lot more resource put into that, and that is the one that's quite high profile. Why do you think that is the case then? Yeah, you know, I think the resources, we need to be smart about where those resources go. Um, you know, I think it's really easy to to simplify, and research is, is, right, you have to simplify into a black and white to answer a question to some extent. But we know that injuries, especially in sport, we know they're so super complex and so multifactorial. Um, we've gotten really kind of honed in on a what's a biomechanically ideal way of moving, right? We're really focused on knee valgus. Um, but what's happening, you know, up and down the chain besides that knee, right? We, we think about the hip, but, you know, there's some really interesting new evidence around what's going on in the brain um, and what might be pre predisposing people um, <clears throat> or putting people at risk um, from a neurocognitive side, um, expanding also out in towards, like I just mentioned, in terms of like wider training principles. And I think that's where those resources need to go. So rather than inventing another prevention program, um, you know, I, what we need to figure out is, is better what are the risk factors. Um, and from that wide perspective, how do some of those risk factors interact with each other? And then um, from that standpoint, um, having identified really better risk factors for what's putting women at risk, um, then we can do better from a prevention standpoint. Mm, OK, yeah, interesting. Interesting. And then so after you'd finished your PhD, what what was next? Yeah, so um, I had a short period where I thought I was headed to the Premier League. <laughs> um, 
unfortunately, uh, last minute visa rejection. Um, oh, you kidding? Foiled, foiled that one. And so instead, I uh, well, actually, so sorry, back up a little bit. Um, I spent four months in Linköping, Sweden, uh, doing a postdoc, kind of continuing some of the ACL um, return to play and prevention work that I'd started in my uh, PhD. Um, and then, yeah, was uh, thought I was headed to the Premier League. Uh, that got thwarted, um, was unemployed for a month or so, um, searching around for jobs and ended up at the Brooklyn Nets as a physical therapist and biomechanist. Um, so it was kind of in the, to some extent in the right place at the right time and knew the right people to um, get connected with the, the Nets um, and uh, yeah, convinced them to take me on board. Right. Can you say the team or is that not right in the Premier League? Uh, I think we'd rather we'll we'll leave that one. We'll leave that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so when were you at the Nets then? So I was there for from the beginning of the 2018 off season um, through January of 2021. Okay, cool. So yeah. you, did you interact much with Dave Hancock then over at the Knicks and like Z? Not a ton. Not a ton. No, um, I I've met him a couple times um, as he's worked with other players. Um, but I didn't didn't really overlap with him there. And then, so in terms of like work going on to work with in basketball, what was how did you find that it's very different in terms of physical stature and so on? Yeah, there were a lot of things that I kind of had to I don't want to say relearn, but but adapt. Um, certainly at the 165 centimeters that I am. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not very far compared to most basketball players um so kind of yeah especially from a manual therapy standpoint really had to kind of learn how to adjust to working on a larger larger player but I think it was really good experience you know from an injury profile standpoint um basketball and football soccer are super similar you know you're you're looking at ankle sprains you're looking at knee injuries you're looking at hamstring strains or adductor strains maybe a little bit more low back in the basketball population um <clears throat> maybe a little less on the adductor side um, from if you're comparing to football, but, you know, really from an injury profile, pretty similar. So that was kind of almost like an easy, I won't say copy paste, but in a way, um, but the exposure to, to learning a new sport, learning a new culture, um, learning to, to work and teach um, in a sport where I couldn't physically play it um was awesome experience um so you know suddenly you know I knew the movements that maybe in a return to play session uh I needed this athlete to get but instead of being able to take a athlete out on the pitch and be able to do it myself I've got to work with a coach to explain you know in this session right these are the things we need to get you know working with sports science to say you know these are the things from a load perspective or a high speed acceleration deceleration perspective that we need to get and we're really collaborating to come up with a session uh, that makes sense from a basketball standpoint but then also gets that athlete what they need so um it was it was a lot of fun um from that perspective and a really great education in terms of a lot more sports science exposure to kind of layer onto my biomechanics um knowledge uh, but then also adding this new sport and having to speak a new language, understand a new culture, um, work within a new organization was really fantastic experience. Mm. And what made you want to leave there? Um, 
I got a little, so I was in the NBA bubble during COVID. Um, so I, uh, I'll be perfectly honest, I got a little burnt out in the bubble. <laughs> Um, and also, you know, COVID was a really hard period, um, I think, for everybody working in sports. Um, but yeah, I got a little burnt out in the bubble. Um, and, you know, you're it's kind of like if you're in camp with a national team, um, right, you're you're living with everyone that you work with. Um, in this case, you were living with at everyone that you work with, plus everyone that you were competing against. Um, <laughs> um so, you know, in some ways it was actually a really cool experience, um, but it was a lot. Um, and uh, so kind of while I was in the bubble, got the, on the opportunity, uh, I kind of came across um, to, to move to Red Bull. Um, and so at the time, um, it seemed like a, a really great opportunity. It was the chance to kind of leave the U.S. again, which is something that, you know, I'd kind of been looking, looking for um, for my partner. Um, it was the chance to kind of get out of New York because nothing really was happening in New York and, and COVID was pretty brutal in New York City. Um, and so, yeah, it was kind of a chance to to go on a little different adventure. Yeah, you couldn't get much more open than, than Austria. Yeah, yep. No, it was, we went from a city of 8 million to a country of 8 million. <laughs> <laughs> and what was the remit then of the role that you went for? What was it about that? particular role that excited you? Yeah, so, you know, I think the chance to work, uh, to expand even further and, and get even more experience with different sports, you know, Red Bull, we've got something like 400 different disciplines um, that we work with. Um, so the chance to kind of take what I've now learned in basketball um, and kind of refine that even further to like be even more adaptable, kind of how do we come up with creative solutions to get an athlete back from um, what could be a pretty crazy injury um, to a pretty, what some people may call a pretty crazy sport. Um, so, you know, whether that's a healthy athlete setting out a project, um, whether that's a, an athlete in rehab, um, just looking to get back to competition. Um, you know, I think it was for me, the attraction of how do we creatively help support athletes you know, achieve some of these just phenomenal athletic tasks that was really appealing to me. Um, and it's still some of the things that I, I absolutely love about this job is just some phenomenal people, phenomenal athletes that are, you know, great fun to great fun to work with and oftentimes keen to to try different things. Um, and uh, and yeah, going back to doing some just awesome awesome things <laughs> so red bull just looks like a just kind of like a unique incredible company where it's you know it's a drinks company but they've invested so massively into sport and been amazingly successful and when when you're going through the process for that what 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 does the company come across like are they big on terms of their values and their mission and so on they are, yeah. So when you start working for Red Bull, you get, uh, it used to be like basically, I think a two-day in-person course. I had it like online because I moved in the middle of COVID. But um, yeah, you learn you learn everything about Red Bull. So whether it's um, to from camp production all the way to branding, to understanding, um, you know, the idea behind sports sponsorship, um, to how do they select athletes, to what are their core values, the company's core values, um, you really get, uh, you really get 
get a you get a full full introduction or full course course to it. Um, and and I think there are a lot of their core values that they look for not only when they're you know picking athletes, but also when they're hiring people. Um, so you know they're they're looking for creativity. They're looking for people who are okay to push the boundaries a little bit, um, but who are are genuine and hardworking and um, you know passionate about what they do. Are they the values that you just mentioned there? Yeah, I think I've 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 misquoted the exact words of some of them, and I think I left a couple out, but those are the those are the big ones. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting core values, and that that seems to be a company that you can sort of associate what that is going to be with the extreme sports, really pushing things on, being pioneers. That's the vibe that I get from it. Mhm, mhm, yep, yep, yep. No, definitely. They've done they've done a good job with their marketing then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I think, you know, actually it's something that, you know, being part of Red Bull, I am proud of, right? Like, so for example, I oversee mountain biking for, for Red Bull and we actually have built a, there's a container, we call it a container, it's a mobile building, but it looks like the other like pits um, for, for mountain biking. So like the mechanical pits, similar to F1, they're just more mobile than, than mountain biking. So we've actually built our own and that pit for us um has two treatment banks in it it's got some it's got bands it's got a normatech um so athletes can come in and do they've got like a warm-up space or they've got a recovery space they can come and do treatment um <clears throat> they can come and just hang out and have a space away from their team and that you know that providing kind of that service for athletes it really stands out right monster doesn't do that other sponsors don't do that um but it really it's that next level of what red bull provides and it's why for a lot of athletes in a lot of different disciplines getting red bull sponsorship for is really seen as like the top thing you can get um because of that kind of extra level of service that red bull aims to provide their athletes mm. Yeah, what skills do you obviously very academically? I've seen your, I've seen your background, and it's incredible. Like with all the the achievement that you've done, what are the skills beyond the academic and uh, that 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 the the kind of written achievement that you think are important to be successful in, in well healthcare in in, in the roles that you've been working in? Yeah, I mean, I think the foundation to it is um, is listening, right? Is having a having honest conversations, building trust with athletes, but it, a lot of it just comes down to listening, right? Most athletes can tell you what's going on with them, maybe not in medical terminology or maybe not with diagnostic accuracy, but they 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 can tell you if you're if you listen. Um and so being that person who's willing to listen, I think is one of for me one of the most important important things. Um being that reliable go-to source. Um for whether that be support or information or, or or really just kind of resource for whatever they need. Um, you know, a lot of times I'm not the specialist, but I can get you to the specialist, right? Like I I may not know how to solve the problem at hand, but you know, let's work through it together and figure out who who we need to pull in to help. Um, so I think building trusting relationships and and for me that's really being a good listener. Um are are really foundational to yeah to being a good physio but especially you know in the roles that I've been in um you know you can't be successful if you haven't built a good a solid relationship with an athlete 
Mm. And what what would your advice be for people who are potentially wanting to get into this area or have been working in the area and want to get into sport? What what are the things that you would suggest? Yeah, you know, I think it goes back to some of the things that I I experienced and was told too. You know, like for me, I think people you to some extent have this conundrum with elite sport in that like you can't get a job until you get experience, but you can't get experience until you get the job. And so finding love, finding ways to get experience. And a lot of that that comes at the sub elite levels or the youth levels, um, you know, finding ways to get that experience. And a lot of times that that's unpaid or it's not paid super well. Um, but volunteering and trying to get experience where you can um, and then building your network. Um, you know, I think networking is is really important in the age of LinkedIn. Um, you know, you and I talked on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, you know, like in the age of LinkedIn, it's super easy to just hit connect, um, but that's not actually building a network, right? Like you and I chatted um, and had messages going back and forth. And I think, you know, actually building relationships with people is how you network. Um, and that's really important to to kind of finding the right opportunities or being in the right place when opportunities come up. Yeah. Oh, no, amazing. No, no, I really appreciate you sharing your time and, and uh, history on this. And albeit you've got a great job now, hopefully you make it to the Premier League at some point. So <laughs> that, that would be, uh, that'd be great if that's still on your agenda. So uh, no, thank you, Amy, for your time. And um, I really appreciate it. And hopefully we can catch up when you're over in the, uh, in the UK at some point. Yeah, no, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. No problem. Great. Cheers, Amy. Enjoy the thunderstorm. Thank you. <laughs> See ya.